Hello, and welcome to the Blog to Who cast. Hello again everybody and welcome to another edition of the Blog to Who cast. I am your host Bedwig Ellidge and joining me to discuss the Ghost Monument, the second episode of Jodie Whittaker's tenure as the Doctor, is the Commander-in-Chief of Blog to Who, fresh off her appearance on Radio 5 Live, Susan Hewitt. Hello, how are you doing? Oh, a bit of a cold but other than that I am well. So, the Ghost Monument, what did you make of it overall Susan? Oh, I thought it was a fun lark. It was it was very good for the second episode, and it kept uh, introducing the uh, the companions and the Doctor. Although I think it shortchanged Yaz again. Um, yet again. Yet again, poor Yaz. Uh, anyway, so getting back to the conversation about whether there are too many people in the TARDIS, but and you know, I thought it was great. So it was a good fun fun piece. Okay, so you're a bit more positive than I am. I'll be honest, I think it's average at best. I think we're talking the beast below following the 11th hour. There's nothing overly terrible about it, but equally there's nothing overly exciting or dramatic, apart from the end, which obviously we'll talk about. And I think a lot of people's reactions, I mean, obviously we're recording this, before most people are going to have the chance to see it, so I'm interested to see people's reactions. But I feel like most viewers will react to the episode based on whether they approve or disapprove of what we get in the conclusion and the new TARDIS. Oh, also in the credit, uh, the credits at the beginning. Yes, okay. Let's, let's start with the positives and the opening title sequence, which unlike last week, is present and correct. And first up, no pre-title sequence. I'm wondering if that's something that will continue through the rest of uh, the season. And I really liked it. It's very kaleidoscopic, a bit Pertwee-esque. And we get the theme tune in full, which, as we said last week, is, is rather excellent and returns to first principles, I guess. Yes, it's gorgeous beginning. Uh, I love the color scheme. I I was, I, I am. I'm sorry. I'm not a fan of the um, the bright primary color iconic that has been used to advertise the. Uh, I just it's just not my thing of colors. <laughs> but the uh, vortex and the pertwiesque. Yes, basically, that was a lovely uh, opening. We've had the time tunnel vortex type title sequences for a few years now and although this particularly with the colors the you know deep purple mm-hmm. kind of alludes to that it's it's a bit more creative and kaleidoscopic yeah uh, kaleidoscopic was the, the only word i could use to describe it, it that's that's how it, that's how it appeared to me mm-hmm. but uh i quite liked it i think that's the combination with the theme tune is particularly good i think the two mesh together very nicely yes and i i'd i'd be hard 
push to find somebody who's who doesn't really like it. I mean, there will be people, but uh, but it's gorgeous. I thought. Yeah, uh, and obviously we get a quick uh, resolution to the cliffhanger, which probably expected, in that the three new companions or and the Doctor, or rather, we get uh, Ryan and Graham picked up first, and later we learn that Yaz and the Doctor have also been picked up. It was nice to have a cliffhanger at the end of the last episode, but you can't leave them hanging in space too long or they will suffocate, so you've got to move on quickly. Well, I was just wondering if he was uh, harking back to the old cliffhangers that we used to have every episode, um, which always got resolved in the first 20 milliseconds of the next episode, right? (laughs) Yeah, and you said uh, last week when we were talking about it, it reminded you of sort of season 12 and I think the image of the fourth doctor sarah and harry floating in space is kind of imprinted on my memory that struck me a mm-hmm. lot i could see that that comparison quite easily well i think i always get the people floating in space always bothers me a little bit because i read too much real science and my brain just disconnects a little bit and the eyes moving around and the fact the hair was floating and a few other things going there's no sound in space there's no air in space there's no <laughs> yeah if you if you're actually in that environment for a second you your head would explode you'd suffocate or you know yeah, yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't survive it's not yeah but it looks nice it looks nice turn off uh, knowledge base that that's one of the things that goes on and then carry on with the show but they do have to quickly imply that uh, they are scooped up instantaneously. And not dead. <laughs> yeah, and so they're not dead. And then we get onto the planet called Desolation, which is an interesting name for a planet. I quite like that, actually. And we meet the two characters, uh, our two central characters, Angstrom. Angstrom. And Epso. I thought it was Enzo, but I because it's Z in there, I think. There's a Z yeah. in there. Yeah. yeah. Epso and oh. two characters that are running two a characters. race. <laughs> yeah. And we were introduced to the the concept of the race and these two final combatants mm-hmm. that are trying to win enough credits to, you know, change their lives. Mm-hmm. Which is a nice idea. What did you make of uh that sort of concept of a, a, a universe-wide race? Well, that's the twelve systems, isn't it? That was talked about in the la- in the last episode the sten- with the Stenza, uh, who are in charge of the twelve sy- systems. So wherever they are, this is the twelve systems again. Racing that's been done before, but I thought I thought uh, it was done in a, a nice, clean, inv- clean way, and it was certainly tying into, um, I guess, genocide or cleansing or all the certain things that are hanging around the the uh, world right now if you look at Syria and um, Yemen and other places around I suspect we're going to get some sort of uh, leanings towards that uh, that kind of uh, background with the stanza going forward but we'll have to see but certainly I liked the two characters I thought Susan Lynch and Sean Dooley were spot on they were really uh amusing uh dedicated different um and uh they interacted well with the uh the existing four characters i agree they were two 
decent characters and I think one of Chris Chibnall's real strengths is when he's able to do character. Mm-hmm. Sean Dooley's character telling the tale of, you know, his mother uh, telling him to jump from a tree and not catch, you know. Mm-hmm. Little little bits like that are quite are quite good and I think the strengths of this episode are in the character-based things. Uh, I just wasn't overly keen about some of the wider aspects, but the character stuff was really good. And it's interesting you mentioned the Stenza. We obviously get more alluding to, to them being this force, which surprised me quite a bit, given we thought they were one of the weaker elements of last week's episode. Yeah, they are. They were kind of like the throwaway monster for, for the first episode of a regeneration, which... I would argue all of them in the last little while have had throwaway monsters and they've never been that strong. But they've brought them back as, as some sort of terror to be considered uh, if you look at the plot that's here. And certainly I would say this is just a tack on to the episode one. You could almost have had it joint together uh, because it's more introducing of the characters. And I think he's got a lot of hard lifting to, to make sure that everybody gets attached to the four characters that are in the TARDIS. Uh, Bradley Walsh was spot on again, surprisingly enough, since since a number of us were a little bit frightened of him being in the show. But he was he's really hitting the part. Reminds me of Wilf a, a bit. And the interesting characters that uh, that Chibnall brought in. Although I must admit, I did love the Doctor fighting with Enz. <laughs> about the ship at the beginning yes yeah he's i mean obviously it's his ship so he's gonna have a reluctance to let anyone else you know have a say over it that's the annoying doctor coming in and telling everybody what to do and and whoever's in charge telling him to get lost uh which has always happened yeah that's very true but you had the difference of say Hartnell, Hartnell could go into a situation and take charge of it and people would allow him to but then when you brought in Troughton you had the same character going into similar situations but being dismissed because he's, you know, clownish and and whatever I think it's similar to uh, David Tennant going in and getting his his face punched by whoever the father was at the idiot's lantern idiot's lantern did he punch him in the face he was punched in the face yeah been a while since i watched that for being annoying and telling everyone what to do so bam yeah and she definitely got to take over the the thing and they did what she wanted in the end anyway so and rightly so right so going back to the stenzo i think it depends how they are portrayed in future Mm -hmm. you know if they are going to make another reappearance because i did really like them when Tim Shaw, as he has now become known and was even credited. Yes, he was credited that way. As Tim Shaw. Where, when he had the mask on, it was effective and it lost me when they took it off. So I think if they have, you know, a lot of appearances or future appearances with the mask on, then I think I can get on board with the Stenzo if it seems that they're going to be a continuing threat going forward. Hmm. It would be interesting how, how brutal and how... Um how the cleansing works and everything like that that was discussed in the episode. There have been, and I can't think of them right now, but there have been cases where there's been a very weak villain in initial introduction. But I could see that that, uh, having a collection of them would be more 
scary, more uh, more stormtroopery, uh, I guess is what I'm looking at for. Well, I mean, we'll we'll do a, a stormtrooper comparison when we talk about the um, robotic guards a bit later. But okay. I, you're right in that they'd be a bit more effective, and actually, it would be quite an interesting change of direction if initially you easily dismiss the stanza because it's like you say the opening episode it's one where you don't really want the a big you don't want a strong universal in the threat first one. yeah exactly it could be interesting to turn that on on its head and suddenly for the viewer to go oh actually the this is quite a dangerous villain and i was wrong to dismiss it mm-hmm. well i mean you have to even look at the um Cybermen and even the Daleks, we haven't seen the impact of their attacks so much in the recent years. If it turns into, we see a lot of uh, the genocide and a lot of, uh, it might be very too scary for kids going forward, I don't know. But um, but you could uh, turn it into something reflecting uh, what's going on in the world right now. And uh, that would be something that Doctor Who would do, right? It does tend to be uh, something that Doctor Who ventures into sometimes, you know. Uh, it can get political, but um, no, it'd be interesting. And there are messages that are worth exploring, for sure. Yeah, but I mean, Graham's very... Him, him and his relationship with Anne Strong, Strong, I thought that scene worked really well. There were a lot of really, really good scenes in, in the episode that pulled you in. I mean, mm. I understand the idea that it wasn't... It, I mean, it's it's not the clever plot device of Hellbent, which I keep on wanting to call he- Heaven Sent. But anyway, it's Hellbent. But yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a clever, uh, intricate episode that has emotions in it and things like that as well. But we're still building the relationships here with this doctor. And I think this episode... I mean, her complaining about nothing in her pockets and wandering around and with the gun lecture um yes and very doctorish yeah i agree with you the sort of characterful stuff is very strong in this episode the issues i have with it though are to do with the planet and the way the planet is once again that trying to portray it as the most dangerous place we've ever visited. There are microscopic organisms in the water that can strip the flesh off the bone and all that sort of stuff, so they don't go in the water. Except they walk through puddles. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So they're trying to convey this peril, which I just wasn't buying. I just, yeah, it really took me out of it. And the robot guards were completely ineffectual. <laughs> yes, they were. It's You were saying stormtroopers. Stormtroopers on Star Wars who are completely incapable of shooting a target that is feet away from them. You know, it, it just verges on the comical. I think there's a shot where the Doctor and a couple of others are running literally feet in front of a robot and he can't shoot them and they try and cover it in the script by you know it's predicting our running lines or try and run in a zigzag or it, it, no it's just th- those I don't think those things would have shot them if they were still running now a million years later <laughs> I thought they should have gone with more that it they had been dormant for a number of whatever and they were just coming back into life uh, uh, not 
saying that it's, they were all that clever. I thought it should have gone with the planet was going back up and attacking. But I understand your point on it. I just dismissed the robots as being not relevant. The cloth creatures were more interesting. Yes. Now, I would have much preferred it had you taken out the robots and... And done the cloth creatures. Yeah, that sort of stalking presence that you can't see and that is gradually revealed when uh, they try and throttle Sean Dooley's character while he's having his nap. That could have been even more effective had they just focused on on the cloth and uh, uh, the force behind those. Four teams making it to the planet and two of them being taken out by creatures of unknown origin would have been more interesting, in a Mm. sense. Yeah, that would have gripped me more, I'll be honest. The robots weren't weren't the best, but they were there to talk, discuss the Doctor doesn't do guns. Mm. And a little bit forced for that sense. And then they were dismissed at that point. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was clever how they got out of the problem with the remnants on the um, acetylene fields. Yes. And I thought that was actually pro- useful for, for kids in a sense, because they were trying to tell them, you know, think about stuff and learn and do some other things or whatever and acetylene and uh, lighting them with the that was all well done so yes i can see your problem with the uh, the robots but i thought that the remnants and the discussions were um, also the crash landing was interesting mm. yeah i was quite proud of myself that was like acetylene isn't that flammable Oh, if only there's something that would spark. Completely forgetting the cigar <laughs> thing. I was like, ah, oh, I, I was so close to having solved the, the whole, how they were going to get out of it, and I and I blew it. Uh, but that was that was a really good effect. You know, that yes. looked really good. And, and again, if they just focused on the remnants, that would have been more effective for me, personally. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. They were also an interesting thing that they were reading the Doctor's mind, and We've obviously got another bit of a, a story arc. I have decided that all showrunners lie. <laughs> <laughs> of course they do. I, I, I do remember him saying, no, 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 they're all standalone episodes. There's no story arc. And I'm going, yes, I've listened to Stephen Moffat <laughs> say similar yeah. things and Russell T. Davis and whatever. And it's not the doctor lies. Uh, it's the showrunner lies. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I think Chris Chibnall forgets we've had Stephen Moffat for a, uh, a good few years <laughs> and, we're, and we're used to not believing exactly what he says. Yes, correct. So, the time child, I don't know what that was about. Yes, a couple of bits in there which I'm sure will become more apparent as we go on. But it's intriguing and, um, yeah, interesting. The um, little bits and pieces all add up in Chibnall's uh, plots, it seems. Whereas Moffat would have some interesting pieces that just kind of floated away <laughs> at various points in time and like he'd forgotten to talk about them later on. He tries to put pieces of the puzzle together after he's done the jigsaw. I mean, for instance, take uh, Russell T. Davis and the woman. Who's the woman? <laughs> End of yes. time. All right. Nobody knows. Still doesn't know. Not decided. Yeah, their connection with Weeping Angels, isn't it? Yeah. Which we don't need to know. We don't need to know everything. No, we don't need to know everything. But I, I, ha- I d- 
do not believe that there's no story thread going through it. I think you could watch each episode by itself, yes, but you could do that in Stephen Moffat's era, era as well, and uh, Russell T. Davis's era. They were not, well, unless it was part one or part two of an ep- a series. Yeah, no, there's a thread going through it. Yeah, definitely. Mentioning once again of the Stenza is, is, is one, and... Uh... I think we'll be looking back on this episode thinking that's where we're, we've been led from to yeah. get to this place when we're about eight episodes in, maybe. Correct. Okay, so let's do it. Let's talk about the new TARDIS interior. Oh, I love the biscuit thing. Does it need a custard cream dispenser? Yes! <laughs> Why not? Jammy Why Dodgers not? are Jammy Dodgers are out. Custard cream dispensers. Well, it is an extension of the uh, old Hartnell era food dispenser, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Plus, it's my favourite cookie, so we're fine. Also, also, they're not a brand either, so... A cookie biscuit. Are they cookie biscuit? Biscuit or cookie? What's the difference between the two? Oh, no idea. <laughs> I would say it's a biscuit, okay. but then you've got a cream between two biscuits. Does that then make... make it a cookie? I don't know. Somebody told me at one point when it was a cookie versus a biscuit. There was a... now correct me if I'm wrong. That is a the crystal TARDIS spinning there. It looks like it. I wasn't a massive fan of that because it 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 reminded me of a sort of a TARDIS you'd get on a spinning top or the ooh, what do we probably looking about ten years ago? There was the TARDIS that you could place on like a little plinth and you could spin it round? Oh, well, I'm more thinking that that was the person who's done the crystal, that beautiful crystal TARDIS that's selling for a mint is going to be making a ton of money now that they've been making it for a while. You used to be able to get TARDIS dashboard accessories and they'd spin round. It looks it looks a lot like that. <laughs> okay, so I did not get to see enough of the TARDIS to know whether I really liked it or not. I did get to see color, the, the the shading and the color that, you know, the that horrible picture that was was leaked out. It's much better than the horrible picture that was leaked out, obviously. Mm. I like the arch. I like the, um, when she walked through the, the door for the first time underneath the arch and there was these um, complicated, they looked Gallifreyan, but they weren't kind of circly. It's the roundels. And the hexagonal pattern merged together. Yeah, that's that. I agree. That's quite nice. I thought nice. that was gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, I also liked that you had a proper box. Then you came in. Mm-hmm. What rather than just the doorway? I thought that was quite nice. Now, when I was in Sheffield, they had the TARDIS, and I walked straight up to it and said, "It's green." <laughs> the the exterior. Yeah, it looked oh. green to me. Okay. And I was looking at this thing going, that looks green. But there were a bunch of us that were saying it looked green. And I think it's more green. Uh, and Because they they kept on saying, uh, no, no, it's it's turquoise. Because we were asking the production people and the people that were, that were responsible for the flat packing of it and putting it away. No, 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 it's still blue. And I'm pretty sure now that Jody's TARDIS is greeny blue. Right, okay. Yeah, the exterior looked nice, and I, I liked... We'll get into her, the interior in a, in a minute, but there was a nice, very wide shot of Jodie running up to the TARDIS. That that was quite lovely. 
and unfortunately when we got inside i was expecting the camera to pull back for this nice big wide shot yes of the console room and we didn't get that we had one incredibly brief wide shot but then everything else was shot mid close-up I get the feeling that it's going to show up in the next one. Do do you? It's almost like the are the, these little teasers. Oh, we're going to tease this out a little bit more. So this traditional episode one that has all these things in one piece. Yeah, I would have thought surely that's the big unveil of the new TARDIS interior, and it it wasn't. No, it wasn't there. In terms of the design, what are your thoughts? Well, I didn't see enough of it. Uh, I did like I did like the biscuit maker, so I thought that was funny. I like the color and the mood of it, and that's about all I can. And I like that arch. And then you didn't really see the TARDIS console. Uh, you know, it, it, I couldn't no, see enough of it. Do you know? And that's the thing that the Doctor dances around in one way or another, and you couldn't see. Not allowed to touch. I thought that was good. <laughs> yes. Don't touch. <laughs> So I suspect, given that we know that we're going to 1955 and not 2018 Sheffield, we're going to Alabama, 1955, I suspect we'll see a little bit more of the TARDIS not quite going where it's supposed to go and things like that. The crystal thing is is okay. That's, that's a design idea. That's mm-hmm. fine. I'm not sure how the Sonic... And the TARDIS can be quite so similar when they've been so separate for the last two episodes. In that she's made the Sonic in a warehouse or, you know, in a workshop in Sheffield. Elsewhere in the universe, the TARDIS has been cultivated. So, again, we're getting that connection between the two important bits of kit. But they have come to this separately. The joint thing is the Doctor in between. Who's always there, and she, the doc, the TARDIS can hear the Doctor, etc. And it's also shifting in and out of phase in that particular point in time that they were on that um, the planet desolate. So you don't know if that was a thousand years for the TARDIS or not. Yeah, but the thing I'm struggling with is the pillars. The pillars interfered. Yeah, I think they're too big. And they're too dominant in most of the shots. Now, to me, the TARDIS has always been like a cathedral. It's massive on the inside. And by having these pillars in and connecting in, down in towards the console, it's it's just bringing the height down. It's bringing the, the scale of it down. And that's what I was struggling with the most. I don't feel I got to see enough of it. That's basically, I'd like to see how they film around it, and we'll see. Certainly, I never got to see enough of Peter Capaldi's TARDIS, even though I kept looking for it. And I really loved the two layers and the library part up top and a whole bunch of stuff on. I've always liked that kind of version of the TARDIS. This is more organic, a little bit more like Eccleston's TARDIS, Mm. a bit, but not quite the same color dream but going back to more of the organic thing instead of the um the library effect the pillars interfered with the shots but i don't know if that was meant to be deliberate like i like i say i think he's going to unveil the tardis really in the next episode yeah i'm sure in practical terms they can 
take out the pillars, possibly. Or maybe they can't, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, if anyone was lucky enough to see the Eccleston Tenant console, that was a 180 degree set. And I get the feeling this is similar. Whereas the later, well, both Matt Smiths and obviously Capaldi's were huge 360 degree things with wall panels that could come out for filming or whatever. But I didn't get the sense of this being 360, although from the one wide shot that we did get, it it does suggest that it's 360, but I, I just wasn't feeling it. I was it, it felt 180, and that was it. I think we'll see more of it. I think it will be the episode three thing. Because yeah. obviously we're getting lost, and we're not going to the right time. I was a bit surprised when the Doctor dropped in that it was a time ship and we didn't get the obvious, so you can go anywhere in time, can we go back and save Grace? I imagine that is coming. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get it's bigger on the inside. No, which actually was a relief to be honest. (laughs) I think that's a bit overdone. There's only so many ways you can do that and make it interesting. Okay. But uh, yeah, I think I'm looking forward to seeing more of it and I think I'll come round to it when I've seen more of it, but I was a bit disappointed with what I saw. And I, like my initial point earlier, I think that tarred my opinion on the Ghost Monument as a whole was because I wasn't left with a wow feeling at the end. Yeah, I could see that. I guess I thought it was just a teaser and that they were teasing us once again. And that's your cliffhanger for this week. Yeah, well, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where they go next. And it's always fascinating to me how people react to infinity and all these different possibilities of anywhere in time and space. Is their first port of call, let's kill Hitler. Ah, it'll be interesting because I thought they had a, some interesting reactions from the companions. Certainly Yaz was sitting around going, I'm on a time, I'm on a spaceship and she was all over the place. Graham was as steady as, as you could be. Okay, we're on here. Now I've got to deal with it. I thought that was kind of very interesting how he dealt with it and he was very concerned about making sure ryan was okay i think graham is my favorite at the moment (laughs) he certainly seems to be mine yeah and i I didn't think i would say that because like most i was a bit worried about what bradley walsh was going to do with it but i think he's probably my favorite i'll put an asterisk on that it's because i don't think i've seen enough of yaz yet and I think when we see more of Yaz, I think she might overtake him. But that's not to say that I don't like Ryan, because his reaction to the TARDIS in particular of, this is, just, this is awesome. Yeah. That's that's the reactions you want to see. Yes. Or you'd expect to see if this actually happened in in reality. Yeah, no, I, I'm really liking Graham. And Yaz is under underplayed right now. Although I feel like she'll come more into her own particularly with next week's story, as we found out this week, is titled Rosa. Yes, Rosa. As in Rosa Parks. Correct. So that's exciting and something to look forward to for sure. And we will be back next week to talk about Rosa and to review it. Thank you, listeners, for joining us once again. Thank you, Susan, for your thoughts on The Ghost Monument. Don't forget, you can send us your feedback on Twitter. We are at blog to whocast and if you want to send us an email, email blog to whocast at dt-forum.com. 
But until next time and next week with Rosa, it's goodbye for now. Goodbye for now. <laughs>